every retreat has an arc, whether it's five days or five weeks or five months. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we are kind of in the downslope. Maybe you feel the pull of going home, beginning to enter. We're not there yet. So it's good to feel that downslope, but to also remember that uh, we still have some time here together. So this evening, in support of this place where we are finding ourselves in the retreat, uh, each of us will offer a bit of reflection about the process of what's helpful or what's been helpful for us in shifting from retreat into life. Um, And we'll uh, offer an opportunity for you to ask some questions if you have them. And um, there'll be some information offered from the managers about the logistics so that you can have a sense of ease about what's coming. I think there's sort of two pieces that are woven for me that I just want to offer for you to reflect on as we are on this downslope. And the first is to say that when the retreat, the structure of the retreat, the form of the retreat uh, ends, that it's still alive in you. That because that the, the shape and form, the circumstances will shift, in some cases somewhat dramatically, it may feel that way. Yet something or some things have been seeded in you And to really understand that what's been seeded, what's been touched, what's been evoked, what's been realized, illuminated for you here is still growing, even when the conditions change. And so that I say that as encouragement to really um, remember that and to take care, you know, to kind of feed and water and nourish those seeds that have been planted in a variety of ways to do that. But a simple way to say it is to, you know, be gentle with yourself because something's something's still growing, something's alive. And the corollary to that is to say that Uh, Often, particularly for those who are new to retreat or new-ish, it's often the case that you are more tender than you know. And you don't know until (laughs) you get on the highway, right? Or you, I remember myself driving over the road. I lived at Tassahara and uh, I was in a community that was like this, about this size, and I knew everybody. 
there. And we were a group of us driving back over this road to the world, and we passed a car that was coming along the road in the opposite direction, and we all looked and said, who is that? And someone in the car said, we don't know who that is. And I thought, oh, there are going to be people I don't know out there. That was, it was like that. So it's very, there's a tenderness. There's been a container here that's been very much a holding place, and that will shift. So in the spirit of that tenderness, again, recognizing it, not being uh, surprised or hard on yourself for noticing how tender you are, it can show up in many different ways, to, um, again, use that as an encouragement to be... To be uh, tender with yourself, to be gentle as best you can given the circumstances that you have as you return to even if your activity needs to amp up quickly to continue to hold yourself with some kindness and continued curiosity as the circumstances change. How is this? What's it like now? What's the impact on my system? as Andrea instructed a few nights ago. So maybe enough for now. Yeah, I I think I would really just underscore the gentleness and the kindness to um, ourselves as we make a transition I think the thing that was coming up for me and thinking about this transition um, is some gentleness and inviting in gentleness and wisdom around um, and understanding that the conditions of the retreat um, are different than the conditions of daily life. And um, that the mind states, the, the heart states that are supported in this condition, in these conditions, um, may not be as readily accessible. So I know that early on in my practice, I would be on retreat and Oh, metta, loving kindness for all beings. Oh, I'm so much of a less of a jerk. When I go home, <laughs> I'm going to be so much easier on my loved ones. And, and um, in like three or three to five days, I was back to my typical levels of jerkiness. <laughs> and, and it was hard. I, there was some sense of um, clinging to some of the the states, um, and so just some awareness that, um, like I had talked in the beginning about the flower that's soaking up the dye. That we that we are going into different conditions, and rather than um, having the attention placed on the states of mind or the states of heart, it's really the, the 
process of how the mind-heart shifts with changing conditions, that can really be an interesting point of exploration. Ah, this is, this is how it is. This is how the mind-heart is um, in the grocery store, or this is how the mind-heart is around um, these family members. And then <coughs> also holding with some gentleness and humor, um, old habits rushing in. Um, I have what I call the triple threat of dissociation habit come in, which is Netflix, usually on a laptop, like right about my stomach. <laughs> and then a s some sort of snack <laughs> resting on my <laughs> chest. And then my phone with like some like a kid's game like Candy Crush or something. <laughs> and then the f it'll be like, oh, there's a feeling. I'm feeling an emotion <laughs> with some sugar on it. <laughs> and so, you know, and then just being struck like, oh, five days ago I was like with, you know, these subtle tendrils of experience in here. <laughs> Things change. So <laughs> uh, yeah, so just gentleness around that. The habits will come back in and 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 humor. Yeah, holding it with humor. <laughs> uh, okay. I think that's it. in uh, kind of following on from what Luigi said about the conditions change and the, you know, the mind states here, and in particular mindfulness, you know, the conditions for mindfulness here are ideal and you see how hard it is here, you know? how we expect, you know, to kind of be able to sit down and, uh, and um, stay mindful, but our mind gets lost, and, and yet we have this, the conditions here, that's, that's our job here, you know, we could say job description of, of, of the yogi is come back, <laughs> come back to the present moment and notice that, and cultivate that capacity to be aware. And we don't have anything else we have to do here other than eat and sleep and pee. You know, that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's about all we have to do. And so we really can uh, cultivate that. And, and there has, the, all of you have more of a momentum of mindfulness than you think. You know, there's, there's more kind of that capacity that's available. And it's developed a little bit slowly in a way. And so you may not actually know how much um, you have settled. After we break silence, after you get onto the 
freeway tomorrow, you may become very aware of how much you had settled. That was my, my experience on my first um, week-long 10-day retreat. It's like I thought, yeah, my mind is just normal. And then we, had, we broke silence, and I went and took a shower. It's like, wow, it feels like there's five radios playing in my head simultaneously. I had no idea this is how my mind worked. <laughs> it was frightening. And so there's more, there's more settling. And, and there may, for some of you for, for whom it's your first retreat, there may be a little bit of a, of a shock at some point in the next day about seeing just how settled your mind was. And so that's, that's just something to keep in mind. It's not, it's not a problem. Um, it can be a little startling. So just kind of holding with gentleness, with kindness, holding that kind of uh, awareness of that. And the, um, you know, in terms of the carrying the practice into, into daily life, um, you know, the way that we do it here, it doesn't translate into daily life, at least in my experience. The way that we practice here, again, the conditions are ideal. We don't, we don't have our jobs, we don't have our, our families that we're interacting with, and, you know, that there's much, there's, there's like, you know, reduced contact, reduced conversation. And so there's, there's not a lot of content except what our own minds produce. And we don't have to deal much with content. The kind of content we have to deal with is, how do you chop the carrot? <laughs> so it's, it's pretty easy content that's coming at us from the outside. And we learn, we're learning how to relate to the content that our minds are producing. But when we go home, we have to deal with the content of the world. And the, that's a challenge. It's, it's really hard. And so the, the practice, um, you know, it, it, it shifts a little bit from the mindfulness being, um, at least in my experience, on retreat, mindfulness is front and center. You know, it is, it is, that is the work. And then when I go home, there are other works that I need to do, other um, responsibilities that I have. We are all lay people here, so, you know, we do have other responsibilities. And um, trying to keep mindfulness front and center, at, at one point I was a computer programmer um, in my prior, my prior life. Um, and I would go home from retreat and it's like, okay, I'm going to keep the mindfulness going. And it's like doing the computer program, programming while I'm trying to say, am I aware? What am I aware of? And it's like, <laughs> you know, it just didn't, doesn't kind of match. And so, um, one thing that I've learned is that there's um, the, the moment, the moment that we play with when in, in sitting practice, when mindfulness returns, when uh, we become aware that we've been lost. That moment is a moment that is effortless. You know, we don't have to do that moment. And then on retreat, we, we kind of connect to that moment and like kind of keep it going. We try to remember to keep that mindfulness going. But that moment, that first moment of mindfulness returning like, oh, mindfulness is back. You know, that moment is an effortless moment of mindfulness that you didn't have to do. It, it's a gift. It's almost like grace. It happens on its own. 
and we begin to get to notice it. And, and that's a lot of what we do in the sitting practice. We notice that happens and then we connect. We connect to experience. And um, in daily life, that moment of mindfulness returning, at least for me, this is one of my key practices. Wherever I am, not just sitting on the cushion, but in the grocery store, driving on the freeway, walking across the street, these moments of mindfulness arise. And, and they're effortless. And so this kind of practice isn't something you have to pick up, like you're picking up mindfulness and carrying it around like a backpack. I'm going to be mindful all day. If that's how you're going to approach being mindful in daily life, probably you'll give it up. But if you instead kind of turn it around and explore, okay, well, I'm going to notice when I become mindful. I'm going to notice when mindfulness returns, that effortless moment of mindfulness. It actually happens more often than you might think, even in your daily life. And so, you know, you can kind of begin to get attuned to that moment. If you can, at the beginning of the day, kind of say to yourself, okay, I'm going to just... See how many times I notice that mindfulness returns in the day and remind yourself again at the end of the day. Have something to help you remember to at least think about that at the beginning and end of the day. Something you put on your bed that helps you remember that intention. And then at the beginning of the day, you know, maybe you forget. Maybe you forget till halfway through the day and then there's a moment of mindfulness returning. And you notice that moment. And then at the end of the day, you see this note on your bed. It's like, wow, I remembered once today. Don't give up at that moment. Just like, okay, well, I remembered once today. (laughs) That was more than I would have gotten if I hadn't had this intention. And keep that intention kind of going. Keep committing to, I'm just going to see, just going to see if I can recognize those moments when mindfulness returns. And if you start to attune yourself to that experience of mindfulness returning, um, it begins to, it's kind of like we get sensitized to it. And so then we notice more of it. And then we notice more of it. And we end up getting these like little moments, maybe, you know, maybe it's, it's like 15 moments through the day where we get this kind of, oh, here's mindfulness. That practice for me has been such a support. And I'd say that's my main daily life practice at this point. It's just noticing those moments of mindfulness returning. And, and at some points the moment of mindfulness returns and there's a little bit of a linger. Yeah, there's the, the mindfulness kind of, uh, um, I get to ride a wave of mindfulness for a little while pretty effortlessly and then it goes away. And so I sometimes say when I teach this, it's like, yeah, notice those moments of mindfulness returning and then get on with your day. Whatever you have to do. You don't have to like try to stop and be mindful about anything. It's just like what's obvious in that moment. Just notice those moments of mindfulness returning. That practice is at least one that can be done with very minimal doing. You just have to remember kind of at the beginning and end of the day to commit to trying at least to look at that. Yeah. Do we look at questions? Take see questions? Okay. Uh, should we use the mic? Why don't we use the mic? Yeah. Oh, I think copy to okay. Luigi said she can she can run the mic.
So we're um, proposing that we boot up this mic and hear from you if there are questions that you have about what's happening now, about anything we've said, about this downslope and uh, imminent return to the world and to your lives. Please. I have a question. Actually, it's... Um, it's on already. Oh, it's on. Yeah. Um, I can completely relate to your triple thread of dissociation. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I wanted to just check in and ask you kind of how you manage that. Hmm. Because I could get very lost in that of binging like Game of Thrones or something and playing Sudoku. Those are my two. <laughs> <laughs> so... Netflix too, but, um, and I find like I was talking in my group discussion today about, um, I've been meditating a lot more this past year, like much more into my practice than I have been. And I find that it's almost like this, um, as this gets more than this gets more. Mm. So, okay, can I just hold it like this? I, I struggled mightily um, because it felt very dharmically incorrect to have these kinds of habits. And so... Um, Hold the mic just to your side of your mouth. Like this? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I wouldn't... Yeah, it was... There was all sorts of accompanying suffering states surrounding it and so that was a point of exploration um really holding it with a lot of gentleness and permissiveness was really important for me um to not try to force against the habits these are really deeply worn grooves and um what i noticed was that the mind was trying to balance itself and um, that the less that I struggled with it against doing these kinds of coping habits that um, there would be less tension in the mind and they actually released um, a little bit sooner as a result of not fighting the, the pattern. I also started just bringing in droplets of mindfulness into it. And what I was waking up into was dissatisfaction. Um, and so there was like this, um, a little bit of a momentum where I would have to stay dissociated because it was actually the dissociating behavior was unpleasant itself and so there would just be a pile on <laughs> and so just dropping in some moments of mindfulness just the intention and kind of waking up noticing the vedana noticing the flavor of it and then just allowing the mind to do what it was as have going unconscious again over and over and over again and definitely the pattern still still emerges and, um, but over time, just the way that it's been held has been, there's been a lot more space around it. Um, and then it 
Yeah. Does that speak to that? Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I know you talked about this twice. You talked about it yesterday and also earlier today about abandonment. And you had mentioned that um, there's an active abandonment where it's like abandoning ship. And that that was easy for me to grasp where I'm thinking about disappointment. You know, that's been something I've been struggling with in my work life and uh, personal life. So I'm... I'm I can actively like detach from the disappointment. I understand that. I think I'm still struggling with understanding the the other part, the second part that's not so active. Can you touch on that again? Yeah, so um Yeah, the active aspect of abandoning is more the stepping away from, you know, kind of realizing well this isn't helpful and I can make another choice right now. And sometimes we can do that, you know, that there's a possibility of doing that. The more a receptive kind of abandonment that I spoke to is when it's possible, and it's not always possible, that, um, like for instance, um, with whatever state, did you say disappointment? You know, so disappointment is arising. <coughs> And if it is possible to know, oh, this is the human experience of disappointment. That's what it feels like. The, um, the mind that can hold that without resistance, without pushing it away or, or like doubling down with it, like, yeah, let's be disappointed right now. I know what that's about. So, you know, the, the kind of neither holding on to or pushing away or being confused about that disappointment, but just like, oh yeah, this is what, this is what it's like when human beings feel disappointed. One teacher, uh, James Perez, offers this analogy that he, he said he used a lot uh, in his practice around trying to, trying to help understand this kind of more stepped back approach of understanding the human experience. He said he pretended like he was an alien who had taken, um, who had been sent down by the mothership to take up residence in a human body. And his job was to p report back to the mothership. What is it like when they feel disappointment? <laughs> what is it like when they feel confusion? <laughs> and, and, and so it, it like pulls you out of the sense of it being personal and then just like, well, this is what a human being experiences. And so playing that kind of game helped him to, to step back. And then, and then also at one point he said, yeah, and it's also true, it's like, yeah, this is what it's like when they feel bliss. This is what it's like when they feel love. 
You know, so it's not just about the difficult ones that we can be curious about the per- of what's happening. And so that possibility of being curious about our experience, it sounds so, I mean, as I said, you know, when I got that book that said, you know, pay attention to your anger. Like essentially be curious about what's it like to be a human being that's anger, angry. I had the same question. How is that going to work? What good is that going to do? Isn't it going to make me more angry? But it doesn't work that way. And I'll say the best that I, that one of the ways to describe maybe why it doesn't work that way is because with mindfulness, with this kind of curiosity about, oh, this is what it feels like when they feel anger, or this is what it feels like when they feel bliss, with that kind of perspective, our, our kind of our organism um, understands that the experience of disappointment, of anger, of anything associated with greed, aversion, and delusion is not in the direction of well-being. Our, 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 we're fortunate in our, in our sense that our, our, our human system wants to move in the direction of well-being. And uh, when, when with mindfulness we get the information that certain states of mind are not well-being, and we've been deluding ourselves. Those states have been deluding us, actually. We haven't been deluding ourselves. Those states have been deluding us. Anger deluded me for years, thinking that I was actually getting something valuable out of it, that it was doing something for me. And so when with, with, with wise mindfulness, seeing, oh, anger hurts. You know, this, this is not well-being in the system right now. So our system wants to move towards well-being. And so when we get the information through this curiosity about what is it to be a human being feeling that, our system like goes, yeah, no, let's not do that anymore. And it, it doesn't know how to do it exactly immediately. It's not like turning a switch or anything. But it kind of is like, yeah, that's not, that's not working. So let's see, what can we do? And, and it, it like over time, it starts to let it go. It starts to, so it's not me doing it. It's not, I'm trying to let it go. It's not, I'm not abandoning it. But somehow our human system getting the information that this is suffering, our human system begins to abandon it. And so it's a natural process of abandoning with that mindfulness. And then likewise with the, with the wholesome qualities, uh, bliss and love. It's like when we feel those with mindfulness, our system knows, yes, this way, this way is helpful. And so our, our system like kind of says, yeah, more of that, that's helpful. And so very naturally with the mindfulness, just the mind, when we can do that, and we can't always do that, but when we can be aware of this is what it feels like when they feel bliss, this is what it feels like when they feel confusion, that process, because of our human system, like wanting to move in the direction of well-being, tends to increase those beautiful states, those helpful states, and tends to figure out over time how to let go of those unhelpful ones. And so it's a natural process of abandoning and a natural process of cultivating as we can kind of find that kind of pocket where it's like, yeah, okay, this is, this is what it feels like when they're confused.
next one maybe needs to be the last one, yeah. So being um, very honest here, um, I don't feel like this is something you can just sit down and you're a pro. Um, it took me a very long time to get to the minutes that I'm at right now, which might only be 30 minutes. And sometimes you can skip a day or a week or more. And I'm wondering how long and what kind of commitment do you really need to get the benefit of this? And if there is a point where you just forget or you stop meditating for whatever reason, can you supplement it with like a mindfulness so that you're not losing out on everything? You're still kind of keeping your foot in the door? Seven minutes a day. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Really. So the, the thing is that um, any amount is good. So I think that's a more helpful way to think of it than to think, oh, I need to get to this amount. And I know for myself, if I put a kind of implicit or explicit pressure on myself that I need to do this certain amount, then there's a huge amount of resistance that kicks in. And as you were describing, if I miss a day or I miss a week, then the hurdle to get back is enormous because I feel like, oh, I totally goofed up. I messed up and now. So I think you set the bar very, very low, you know? And uh, I used to have a practice of, so the, the practice was just to sit down every day and I didn't do it every day, but that was the aim, was to sit down every day. And the length of time that I was going to practice was after the third time that my mind wanted to get up. So my mind would want to get up, and I'd go, nope, that was number one. And I'd sit there a little longer, and then I'd feel like, oh, okay, that was number two. Okay, I'm up. So that was a very kind of low bar but it, it got me to sit down every day. Yeah. And the second part of, so th I mean, that's true for any of us, right? So the first is, I think, set a low bar. And then if you do more, you can celebrate. It's great. <laughs> really. But that's a totally different than you set a high bar and you're failing all the time. And then it's like carrying the backpack around, right? You, like, who wants to do that? Forget it. I'll go do something else. Anything else, probably. Candy Crush is good. <laughs> yeah, the refrigerator is good. Yeah. Um, so that's one. I think the second piece about it is to really allow yourself to be creative. You know, Andrea and others were saying it's like we have this particular setup of conditions here. And sometimes I used to give myself a, a plan B. So my intention was to sit for these three times of wanting to get up every morning. Sometimes I didn't do it, so then there was plan B. So plan B was if I couldn't, if I didn't do that, then I had a safety net. And that was, you know, you might say, I'm gonna sit for five minutes and not check my phone while I'm on the train or the bus or the whatever commute. Or I used to say, you know, for a lot of people who drive in their car to get somewhere, it's a great transition space to like, okay, I parked the car, now I'm gonna sit for a minute before I 
go home or go to work or whatever it is. So that's a kind of being creative with the practice. And the last piece I would say is that it's more in the spirit of noticing these moments of mindfulness. But there, for me, there's been a very useful kind of bookends practice is what I call it. So I would set an intention for the day. So maybe my intention, I might scan through my day and know that I'm going to have a couple of difficult conversations. And my intention might be, I'm going to do my best to be kind with myself in these situations. That's the intention. So then I have something to engage with in the context of my daily life. And then at the end of the day, that's the other bookend, I'm going to do a little reflection back. How did I do? And not how did I do judging grading, but how did I do with an understanding of I did the best I could, and perhaps I can learn from the situation. If I wasn't able to do it, what might I shift that would support my ability to do it? If I was able to do it, what supported me in being able to do that? And then you create your own feedback loop. So you can keep building in that way. So there's a few thoughts. Yeah. So we have to shift now and um, I would just like to take a few moments to uh, just kind of express appreciation and awe for this place. I mean, it's an amazing place. I feel really privileged to be a part of this center. Um, the, the care and the love that has gone into the, uh, the possibility to have a Donna-based center where there's no, no fees charged for the retreat. You know, I was, I was a skeptic. Um, and, and pretty much everybody that Gil talked to outside of our community told him it wasn't going to work. And here we are six years later, and it's working. And so part of, part of the main reason it works is because so many people commit to uh, showing up and making it run. You know, we have the small circle of, of, of people for this retreat that make it run, which are the service leaders for this retreat and Faith, our registrar for this retreat. And then uh, a slightly larger circle of the resident volunteers that live here and kind of make sure that the toilets flush and the, you know, the garden is working and the irrigation is working and that their deck has not got holes in it. And, and so there's, th- there's that level too, that layer of people supporting us. And then there's a, a kind of the larger circle of people who, you know, did the ordering for the produce and do the inventory of the, of the shampoo and the tea and, you know, everything. It's the toilet paper. I mean, somebody orders the toilet paper. Somebody makes a list that things are on, that things have to be ordered. And, and then there are the, the larger circle, the people who kind of um, make the lists, the people who uh, have created the organization. Um, there's so many people, so many people involved in this uh, center. It's not possible to name them all. And um, I will name uh, Inez, who uh, 
as our, uh, our first managing director, just recently retired, <laughs> uh, in the process of training the people to take her place. Um, you know, she really, the vision for how this place runs, everything you look at in the center is an expression of her love of the Dharma and her amazing organizational mind. You know, the placement of the, of the, the you know, the water fountain, um, the placement of the sink to wash our hands as we go into the, the dining room, you know, the organization of the tea counter. Every place in this building was thought through with such love and such care. And uh, we, we, I mean, we really owe a, a great um, uh, debt of gratitude to her vision for how this could work and, and and just so many so many people participate in this you know that you know they're they're uh, so i just want to 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 put that out there because it takes people to make this place run and it's an op- it's an op- it's an opportunity you know if you find this inspirational there are ways to participate in in uh, in the center and there'll be something tomorrow where we can uh, we can point you to that possibility if that's of interest. And you don't have to live locally. And so much is online these days that uh, there's possibilities from a distance as well. And so, just appreciation for the for this center and how it works, and gratitude that I get to be part of it. You know, it's amazing. So. And thank you for coming. Thank you for being a part of this. And maybe, um, you know, seeing the possibility. Uh, this is like so radically different than anything else in this culture. You know, this, this, this model of, of generosity. It is so different than anything in this culture. And, and maybe this can be the seeds of something different for our, our culture. And you can all be part of carrying that out into the world. So, Kabita, your turn.